Welcome to Emerge Everywhere. I'm Jennifer Tesher, journalist turned financial health champion. As founder and CEO of the Financial Health Network, I've spent my career breaking down silos by engaging with innovators across industries. And now I'm sharing those conversations with you. Meet the forward-thinking leaders challenging the status quo and unleashing creative new ways of improving financial health by seeing their customers, employees, and communities in 3D. The twin crises of the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic downturn it spawned are maybe the best example yet of the link between physical, mental, and financial health. My guest today is uniquely qualified to explore these intersections. Dr. Richard Besser is a global public health expert and the president and CEO of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation the largest private foundation in the country devoted solely to improving the nation's health. As a pediatrician and the former acting director of the Centers for Disease Control, Dr. Besser has worked in communities around the globe to ensure families are able to raise healthy children. Today, he is particularly focused on achieving health equity, ensuring that communities of color aren't left behind. Rich, welcome to Emerge Everywhere. Thanks, Jennifer. It's it's really good to be here. So, you know, this show, Emerge Everywhere, is really about intersections. It's about the idea that your patient and my worker and his student and her renter are actually all the same person. (laughs) We just Mm -hmm. tend to see them in a silo. Um, And if there's one thing that COVID has really reinforced for me, it's that everything is interconnected. Absolutely everything is interconnected. you lead the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and your North Star, as you've said, is to build a culture of health. Yeah. Uh, I see the culture of health as being all about intersections. So mm-hmm. talk to me a little bit about what what is a culture of health and yeah. why is it so important? Yeah, I, I, you know, it's, it, it, it is absolutely critically important. And as you're saying, COVID shines a bright light on it. The, the idea of a, of a culture of health um, is really a recognition that health is about much more than having access to high quality, comprehensive, affordable health care. You, you have to have that. Um, but if you have health care, it doesn't mean that you have you truly have opportunities for health. Health is what takes place in the communities in which we live, uh, where our kids go to school and where they play, uh, where we work. Those are all the settings that, that play such an incredible role in terms of health. And we don't talk about the culture of health without talking about the concept of, of health equity. And, and by that, we mean uh, the idea that everyone has a fair and just opportunity for health and that the barriers to health that are there for so many uh, related to structural racism and sexism and homophobia and ableism and classism, you can go on and on. Uh, But if you don't remove those barriers, if you don't look at those barriers and and recognize that that for some people in our society, health is the easy option. And for some people in our society, it's a near impossibility. If you don't recognize that and move away from this idea that health is all about individual choice, you will never reach reach the, the goal of a culture of health. This idea of the culture of health is not a COVID idea. Uh, The foundation was at this 
pre-COVID, I think even before you came to the foundation in 2017, what does that work look like? How does trying to create a culture of health show up in the grants yeah. you made, in the calls to action that you are making out in the world? Yeah. I mean, the We'll, we'll talk a lot about COVID because COVID has 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 shined a light uh, on the inequities in our society uh, and uh, in in just stark stark light. Uh, when we think about a culture of health, um, it's it's really everything. And so for us as 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 grant makers as a philanthropy. Um, we've had to pick areas where we think we can have the most impact. So we do a lot of work uh, around uh, healthy communities and the connection between housing and health. Uh, what kind of development takes place in communities? How do you ensure that people live in communities uh, where, where they have access to affordable, safe uh, housing, stable housing? Uh, how do you ensure that there are jobs and transportation systems that are linked to where people are, are, are living so that you know, they, they can work? Um, there's, there's a lot of attention there. And, and how can we shine a light and let people see the connection between housing and health? Um, last year, my president's message was all about this connection between housing and health. And uh, the, you know, it's, it, it's pretty easy to understand, I think, that if someone is paying, is spending, you know, more than half of their income um, on housing, it's, it's hard to have a lot of money left over for healthy food, uh, for, for all of the things that, that you know uh, people need to, to lead a healthy life. If, if you are uh, in, in a household where your risk of eviction uh, is, is very high, uh, it's pretty hard for you to provide the stable environment you want to for your children. Um, it's hard if you're in a household where eviction is a challenge to have your child in a stable school environment where they can develop the peer relationships that are so important, the educational development that's so important. Um, the, there's clear connections there between housing and health. Uh, we're also focused on on, on the issues of, of uh, healthy children and families. And, and there it's, how do we ensure that every family has what they know their children need to succeed? Uh, very different than saying, wow, let's provide some education so people know that you know, you're supposed to exercise an hour a day and you need your, uh, to, to eat properly off your food pyramid or your food plate. And it, it's how do you ensure that that parents have those resources they know they need to raise healthy, successful children. Um, and a lot of our work focuses on issues of, of policy, uh, what policies need to be in place uh, around uh, mindsets of who do we as a society view as worthy and who do we not? Uh, you know, where do we allow for opportunity and where do we, where do we not? Uh, and, and more and more looking at community power. How do we provide resources to those in communities who are closest to the problem, who are living, living these issues every day, who clearly see the solutions to those problems and need resources to help affect the, the, the changes that, that they know are necessary? Uh, we do a lot of investment in, in leaders. Uh, our leadership, across our history, we've had leadership programs. The Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program uh, uh, trained people to do health services research. Uh, and you'll find incredible 
graduates of, of, of the program in leadership positions across the country. We have moved away from that to change leadership programs. So how do we provide resources to those in communities who are trying to affect change? Uh, And that's really, really exciting work. It's one thing to talk to healthcare professionals or administrators or public health uh, professionals about the upstream inputs to uh, health, the social determinants of health. But it's another to engage with, say, employers or uh, big corporations or folks in community or home builders uh, who don't see themselves necessarily as being in the health business. How do you make the case to them? I mean, it seems obvious to you and me uh, that there's a connection, but how do you make the case to these audiences, which wouldn't have been your traditional audience as a health foundation? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm finding that with, uh, with the COVID pandemic, Uh, and the economic crisis in America and the movement for racial justice in America, it's become easier and easier to to make the case for the connection between uh, economic health and and overall health. It's easier to make the connection between structural racism uh, and and barriers to health. If if you look at at, at this pandemic, it's, it's hitting every community in America uh, but it clearly is not hitting every community, every population at the same level. You know, Black, Latino, Native Americans uh, being infected, being hospitalized, dying at you know three to five to seven times the rate of, of, of white Americans. And it begs the question as to why. And a lot of that comes down to economics. Uh, a greater proportion of people of color work uh, low, uh, are, are paid lower wages. Uh, they're in lower income jobs, um, have less wealth, have less savings. Uh, the idea of staying home uh, and working remotely uh, is not an option if you work in food production, if you're a frontline healthcare worker, if you work in the transit system. You know, so many of these jobs have a greater proportion of, of individuals who, who are people of color. And so you can't do those jobs remotely. Uh, the wealth gap in America is, is enormous. Uh, the, the, the ratio of, of wealth between uh, whites to, to blacks is something like 10 to 1. Uh, and so, you know, the resources that people have to be able to say, you know, uh, I'm not feeling great today, um, or I've been exposed to somebody who may have COVID, I'm going to stay home and, and make sure that I'm not spreading this out there. Well, if, if, if the choice is between going to work with, with a slight risk so you can put food on the table and pay the rent, or staying home to follow public health recommendations, well, it's an easy choice. It's a rational choice. You have to go to work. And you know, while the federal government puts some resources out there to support people last spring, most of those are gone, and the rest of them are gone by the end of December. And the idea that you know, as the wealthiest nation on the planet, um, we are going to allow tens of millions of people to be evicted in January, in the middle of winter, in the middle of a pandemic, is absolutely criminal. Yeah, I am very, very concerned about the financial health of Americans. You know, at the same time, we see the stock market, you know, hit the 30,000 level. There's such a disconnect between the typical measures that we use as a country to assess um, our economic health and the economic realities for um 
frankly, the majority of Americans and certainly of those living at the margins. And it creates a sense of cognitive dissonance uh, to hold those same set of facts in your head at the same time and try to make sense of them. Um, We're going to get back to your sort of call to action for the incoming administration. Um, But first, I want to make sure that we continue to unpack a little bit this intersection between uh, physical, mental, and financial health, because it's really bi-directional, right? So healthcare costs can disrupt financial health, but also financial insecurity impacts health outcomes. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that we haven't yet talked about is the role that stress plays uh, in causing so many of the chronic health conditions that many people face, or at least contribute to them. So we do a lot of um, survey work to assess the state of financial health in America. And we ask a whole set of other questions, including a bunch of basic health questions, physical health questions, so that we can understand the connection. And um, according to our research, 43% of our respondents, this is nationally representative, it's a panel of about 6,000 people, uh, 43% say that their finances are causing them moderate to high stress. Uh, 58% of them believe that their financial stress affects their physical health. 65% believe financial stress impacts their mental health. So people are aware themselves of the intersection. Um, And then, of course, what you would expect is true. The healthier you are physically, the more financially healthy you are. Um, Folks who state that they're in excellent physical health, half of them are financially healthy. Similarly, uh, people who uh, aren't getting health care, it's because they can't afford it. Um, and often we had 17% of consumers say they stopped taking their medication or took less than directed, right? Because they couldn't afford the cost. And finally, you know, we look at what are the factors that really um, drive financial health? Um, when, you're fina- when your physical health declines, uh, we find that you experience a three-point decline in your financial health. If, if a financial health score is on a, on a scale of zero to 100, you're losing more than three points when your physical health declines. Uh, you're losing three more than three points when you have a major medical expense. But when your physical health improves, you gain almost two points. Uh, so tell me, talk to me a little bit about how you see this connection play out uh, in some of the broad changes uh, and transformations that you're trying to affect. Well, I, you know, I, I, I'm seeing it play out again in the, in, in the pandemic. If you if you look at the start of the, pan, of the pandemic, there were 28 million people in America with without health insurance. Um, the connection between how we how we provide health services in this country and and finance is is clear, given how many people get get health insurance through their through their jobs. Um, and, you know, the Affordable Care Act increased the number of people who had health insurance, um, but it was not the end state that we're looking for. We believe that everyone in America should have, uh, that we should have universal health care. And there are many ways to get there, but everyone deserves access to high quality, comprehensive, affordable uh, health care. Um, you know, and during this pandemic, as, as millions of people have lost their jobs, Millions of people will be losing health insurance, and um, it's it's just wrong. Uh, with the Affordable Care Act, states had the opportunity to expand expand uh, Medicaid, 
but a number of states haven't. There are 12 states that still haven't expanded Medicaid. And those are primarily Southern states with very large proportions of populations uh, who are African American. So again, you see this connection between, between structural racism uh, and, and health. When, when, I, when I look at the, the early guidance that CDC was putting out in terms of, well, what do you do if you, have, if you think you have COVID? They said, don't go to the hospital because there you could expose healthcare workers or expose yourself. Call your doctor. Well, if you didn't have a doctor, what are you going to do? I mean, it means that you're going to delay uh, getting care. You're going to go to the hospital when you're, you're sicker and your outcome is going to be worse. Your comment about stress is, is spot on. We know that, that in the short term, a stress reaction is good. You know, it's you know, you're you're outside walking in the woods. You see a bear. Your stress reaction kicks in, and you get out of there. That's good. But if the bear is there every day, you know, you leave your house and there's the bear. You're walking down the street and there's the bear. The bear doesn't go away. That's really bad for your health, and that's the impact of of stress of all kinds. We we know now that that's one of the the reasons why we see worse, worse health outcomes in people who are subjected to chronic racism. Uh, it's, it's one of those, those, those impacts there. And, and that's playing out here. When you, when you look at uh, why uh, African-Americans are, are being affected so, so uh, greatly by this, part of it is exposure. The biggest part is exposure. But part of it is also because of higher rates of many of the chronic diseases, diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, from environmental conditions and communities. Uh, again, there, there's financial issues and there's redlining, there's lack of ability to, to move to opportunity, to financial opportunity. Uh, but there's also uh, the, the conditions in those communities in terms of air quality and such that, that, that can worsen, worsen health. Yeah. Um, finances is definitely a, a part of it. Um, I see a lot of that connection uh, in terms of, of our thinking around um, who has access to high quality, good paying jobs and who doesn't. And when I think about it in terms of our, our work, you know, and why we talk about the importance of a, of a living wage, you know, yeah. what could that possibly have to do with health? It has everything to do about health, everything. Yeah. You know, when we're, when we're saying to people, wow, this pandemic would just go away if everyone would just wear their masks and keep apart, and wash their hands, that would help a lot. And, and that really has to happen over these next few months, uh, uh, next four or five months before we have, have vaccine. But if Congress doesn't step in uh, and, and do what they need to do, um, people are going to be hit, hit incredibly hard at the end of December. That's when we see eviction protection yeah. go away. Uh, that's where we see a lot of a lot of the financial issues, the uh, pandemic emergency unemployment compensation. The ex extra 13 weeks goes away. Um, assistance for unemployment assistance for gig workers that goes away. Uh, paid family leave uh, for many people goes away. Um, you know these things are tied to to finance because if you don't have money coming in. There's no way you can follow the, the CDC recommendations and quarantine and isolate when you think you may have been exposed. It's, it's just impossible. But yet Congress doesn't come together and put money back in people's pockets. It's, yeah. it's really uh, it's wrong morally. It's wrong from a public health perspective. You know, let's let's use this as a jumping off point, though, to talk about the role of employers, because um, given the 
lack of a sufficient response by the government. Um, you've seen a lot of uh, corporate leaders not just speak up on these kind of issues, but have to take uh, more significant stances and play a bigger role um, in helping to prop up uh, their workers. Um, unfortunately, we've seen a lot of big companies um, pull back, dial back on some of the policies that they put in place. For instance, um, uh, the extra COVID pay for right. emergency or frontline workers, paid leave. We've seen some of that get pulled back. Um, you know, at the same time that we're now hearing potentially about a double dip recession. Yeah. Uh, and so whether or not there's health care for all, um, it seems to me at least that employers are going to continue to be a really important uh, locus for not just health insurance and health care issues, but all kinds of other um, financial uh, issues and issues around good jobs. And it's kind of interesting in a way, uh, because if I understand the history right, uh, the found, you know, the the creator of the foundation, Robert Wood Johnson II, really got started here by working with his employees and the community to help them through the Great Depression. Yeah. And I regularly say to employers, if you're really focusing on the health of your workforce because you want to reduce your insurance costs and you're not thinking about the financial health of your workforce, you're just bailing a leaky boat. Uh, because the thing they're so connected. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about if we are to move to uh, healthcare for all, um, what role do you continue to see for employers? Um, how important are they? Um, do they give us enough coverage given that there are plenty of people who are not in the traditional workforce? How do you see their role? Well, I think employers, uh, in, in particular large employers, could play a really important role. Uh, this summer, I, I spoke to the business roundtable, and uh, there was the, the, there was a lot of um, focus and interest, and uh, I think I think real interest in in saying what can the corporate community do to address issues of structural racism in America. Yeah. Um, and the question to me was, how does this connect to, to health? What 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 can be done? And I said, well, you know, first is you can pay a living wage uh, and make sure that every employee uh, is paid a living wage. The second thing is you can look at your at your sick leave and family medical leave policies, um, you know, because if someone is exposed to covid and the choice, as I was saying before, and the choice is between staying home for 14 days because that's the recommendation, um, but there's no there's no leave or someone could lose their job, they're going to come to work and they're going to infect your other employees and they're going to infect your customers. And that's a really bad thing. So whether it's out of corporate self-interest or because it's absolutely the right thing to do, um, everyone in America should have, should have sick leave. Uh, everyone in America should be paid a living wage. It seems like it's a it's a no brainer, uh, but but uh, the you see time and time again when efforts are made to increase the minimum wage uh, that there's real pushback on that when um, it's it's the right thing to do from an equity standpoint and from a justice standpoint and it has a direct tie in to to health. 
Yeah. Yeah. It'll be very interesting to see in the new administration uh, how much progress can be made. It'll depend in part on who wins those two Senate races uh, in Georgia. Um, But there's been quite a bit of work at the state level and the municipal level on some of these issues. Uh, And I think uh, whether it ends up being a state's game or a federal game will, will depend on depend on what we see in January. You know, I think many people know that you were the acting director of the CDC. Uh, and before that, uh, you were in charge of public health emergency preparedness and emergency response. And so I feel like a lot of our listeners are going to want to hear from you a little bit about this vaccine or vaccines, yeah. I should say, that we're hearing about. But Fitting for this conversation, I'd love to hear you talk about how you think we can use vaccine distribution to promote health equity. Should there be equity considerations to guide the decisions around prioritizing who gets it, how they get it? I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that. Yeah. You know, I I, uh, have never been more optimistic about the pandemic and its course than I am right now. Um, But I've also never been uh, more worried about the situation. Uh, I'm worried about the situation because all of this exciting vaccine news is, I think, giving people a misconception that it's done. We can take off our masks and hug our loved ones. Uh, You know, let's get together, have a big party and celebrate. That's not the case. This winter is uh, a field day for respiratory viruses. Viruses love the winter. They love cold air. They love low humidity. They love when we're indoors and near each other because viruses can then jump from person to person. And if we can come together as a nation and get the politics out of this so that wearing a mask doesn't say something about your political leanings, it says something about Uh, your approach to public health, that you care about your own health and the health of your family and the health of people around you. If we can do that and double down and buckle down over the next three, four months, then yes, the end is in sight. When it comes to the vaccines uh, and FDA, you know, they have to be allowed to do their approval process without uh, politics coming into it, or no one is going to want the vaccines that come out the other end. Uh, And that would be the ultimate tragedy to have vaccines that are safe and effective, and no one wants them because we don't believe that the science was was done done correctly. Uh, but you have to have equity considerations in, in, in this. When you look at who is being hit hardest by the pandemic, that has to factor in. And I'm seeing it factor in in a number of, of, of ways that I think um, are, are on target, uh, but we'll have to see how it plays out. You know, in, in, uh, in, a public health crisis. You don't want someone's income or social connections to drive their their access and where they are in line for for prevention measure. Here, um, the, the the way the priority list is determined, um, there is an advisor. FDA decides whether vaccines approved, and then the the CDC uh, gets recommendations from its federal advisory committee, the advisory committee on immunization practices. And what they're looking at in terms of priority order, and this factors in issues of justice, factors in issues of equity, issues of of maximizing benefits and minimizing harm, uh, and it factors in um, issues of transparency, so people know how the system should work. Their recommendation is frontline health workers get it first, and that makes sense because they're taking care of all of us when we get sick. 
Um, and if you look there in terms of equity issues, yeah. um, there's a, a high proportion of people of color who work as frontline healthcare workers. Um, second in line are other essential workers. And again, uh, uh, high proportions of people of color are out there doing the work to keep society going. That's important. Uh, the next group are those with underlying medical conditions, and a great proportion of people of color have those conditions. And then the next group are, are people over 65. Um, there you, do, you, you see actually a lower proportion of people of, of, of color. And so you'll, we'll need to see as this goes forward, but, but people over 65 are a high-risk group, as we've seen devastating impact in, in nursing homes. It's, it's going to be really important that public health work with trusted leaders and communities. The, the surveys right now are showing that fewer than 20% of African-Americans trust that a vaccine coming forward is going to be safe and that they want to get it. Um, nationally, it's, it's less than 60% of people say that they're, they're going to trust this. So a lot of work has to be done. And it's not simply saying, oh, yes, it's safe and effective. It's looking to see how do you overcome um, the history of how communities of color, how African-American communities have been treated by public health. You know, there's a long history of experimentation and, um, uh, and that needs to be, be dealt with by, by dealing with trusted voices in communities. You know, thankfully, the vaccine trials that have been conducted uh, worked hard to recruit very diverse uh, uh, study subjects so that there will be data on safety and effect uh, effectiveness by race and ethnicity, uh, and hopefully that will help with some of the trust issues. But each state uh, should provide transparency and show who is getting vaccines, show, show it by location, show it by race, ethnicity, income, gender. Uh, there's a lot of factors here that, that uh, will be very important. Uh, so that we can feel comfortable that it was done in a, in a fair way and will have impact. Got it. I want to talk a little bit about you as a leader, because the other thing we talk about on this podcast is um, the importance of empathy in really seeing people in 3D, really seeing all of the person and thus being able to uh, work on these intersections. Um, and you have a really interesting uh, personal journey. Uh, you are a doctor. You've been a public health uh, expert. You've been involved in public health issues like Ebola and H1N1 all around the world. You come from a family who seems to be very focused on giving back, particularly in the healthcare arena. Um, and I tend to find that the best and most empathetic leaders have some personal experience or personal story that connects them, uh, connects to their passion and connects to their leadership. So tell us about you, sort of, how did you get on this journey? Did you always know you wanted to be a doctor? I think I, I did know I wanted to be a doctor. I, I grew up in uh, a household uh, of doctors. Um, my father is an obstetrician and gynecologist. My mom's a social worker. Uh, my dad's parents, who I was really close to, uh, my, my grandfather was a family doctor in Philadelphia and their office, and, it, and, and my grandmother was the nurse in his practice oh. and their office was in the basement uh, of, you know, kind of a brownstone in, in, in Philly. And, um, you know, I, I just saw the, 
lives that they were able to live and the joy that they got in, in being able to be in a, a career of, of, of service. Um, and my parents also um, believed in giving back and each summer would spend several weeks out uh, on, on uh, uh, the Navajo reservation out, out in uh, Arizona. And uh, I went out with them and, and enjoyed that experience. And so I, I, I had a sense I wanted to go into, into medicine but I didn't think I was going to want to do the same approach to medicine that they did. I was really interested in global health. I've been an exchange student uh, in Australia. I thought I would spend my career working um, around the world. I spent a year uh, after college traveling around the, uh, the world. I worked as a bartender, made some money, and then took off. And it was probably one of the most uh, important years for me, just being able to see uh, the conditions uh, uh, for people in, in, in many lower income countries. So I, I decided that I wanted a career that was very focused on, on public health and went off that route. But I, 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 I'm still a pediatrician. Uh, and at heart, in terms of my identity, I view myself as a pediatrician. And uh, I've been fortunate that I've been able to continue practicing pediatrics in all my jobs as a volunteer in, in community clinics. And, and that experience of, of being with families and communities uh, in community clinics um, has really grounded me in all my other work because mm -hmm. I, I see the challenges that so many people face uh, in trying to lead healthy lives, in trying to provide the best for their children. Um, and so little of it has to do with lack of knowledge Yet we, we continue to approach every single problem that, oh, wow, just hit it with an ad campaign. If people just knew what to do, they would change their behavior instead of, uh, of doing what we are, are doing at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which is saying, OK, how do we address the structures that allow this to, to continue? Uh, you know, and it's not just saying, wow, this person is about to have their utilities shut off. Let's connect them to an attorney so their utilities uh, uh, aren't shut off. Um, this person's hungry. Let's connect them to a food bank. It's saying, why, why are people stuck in communities where there's little opportunity? Why are they stuck in communities where they're having to pay such a high proportion of their of their money on on rent? Why are they stuck in jobs that don't pay them enough uh, to feed their family without going to uh, to a food bank? And it's very different. So when you know we talk about social determinants of health, we want to go up upstream and look and say, you know, what is it about the fundamental nature of our economy? What is it about uh, you know fundamental nature of our society that says that some people um, are worthy and some people are not? Some people lack opportunity and some people uh, you know are 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 lifted up uh, and and it's pretty hard not to succeed. We want to address those those fundamental issues and it speaks to to my my passion around social justice. Uh, and this is about justice. These are justice issues. And I've been very fortunate that I've been able to work in public health in many different ways. Mm -hmm. And in each one, I see uh, a different set of tools to come at the problem. So governmental public health and academic public health, and then practicing public health on the air at ABC. And now at a, uh, at a philanthropy, we're all, we all come at these issues from, from different perspectives. 
but they all, I think, are really valuable and contribute to the solutions. Yeah. Well, you and I, it sounds like, have a few things in common because for me, my as a former journalist, I'm a question asker. And I mm-hmm. think the most powerful question you can ask is why. Uh, And it's important to understand the details and to get into the details. But in financial services, as an example, the, the, you know, the question why is often, well, because that's how it's done. I I expect that is, is often the case in medicine. And frankly, it's often the case in many fields. Um, And it's, uh, it relates in part to the importance of continued innovation Um, and connecting that innovation to what's actually happening in the real world. So, I think asking good questions is is something that I think we both uh, find to be a powerful tool. Um, the other thing it sounds like we have in common is that we are frequently having to tell people that it's not about education because often the very first thing that you hear when you talk about challenges in pure financial services is let's let's teach them how to budget. I can tell you people who barely make enough money to make ends meet, are better budgeters than anybody because yes. they know how to stretch a dollar. Yeah. Um, it's, it, I often talk about the no-do gap, right? We all know we should save, but it's hard. And frankly, some of it is just the way that our brains are wired um, from a behavioral economics perspective. We all know we shouldn't, we should eat healthy. You know, I'm the person who cuts the donut in half and then I go back for the other half a donut, right? right. So we all know we shouldn't overspend and then we spend. So, um, you know, that's not about knowledge. Um, that's about behavior. Um, and I, and I think one of the most challenging aspects of the equity conversation that we're having today is recognizing that so much of behavior is predicated on systems and on past history. Um, and that, uh, there's a deep connection between the, what, what appears to be a choice you have to consider what the choice set was in the first place. Right. We talk about that a lot in our work, that yes, uh, the choices people make matter in terms of health, but the, the choices you make depend on the choices you have. And for too many people in our country, healthy choices are just not an option or they're not an easy option. Um, and we want to work towards a day when everyone uh, has those healthy options as the, the easy way, as the, as the default. Exactly. Uh, we have a long way, way to go. But I, I am optimistic that, that the, the existence of this pandemic and the economic downturn and the movement for racial justice um, could represent a real inflection point. Uh, and as a society, we have the opportunity to say, um, is this the society we want to have? Is this as good as it can get? And if, if not, um, we have to make some fundamental changes in America. Rich, thanks so much for joining us on Emerge Everywhere. Thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation. This has been Emerge Everywhere, a Financial Health Network production. I'm Jennifer Tesher, and I'd love to hear your ideas for future guests and your reactions to the show. You can connect with me on Twitter at Jen Tesher. If you liked this episode, please review the show and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the work and research we do, please visit emerge.finhealthnetwork.org. See you next time.